Today's episode, The Medieval Crusader, Bohemond. Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Georgios Theotokos, author of Bowman of Toronto, Crusader and Conqueror, published March 15, 2021 by Pen and Sword Military. Thank you for speaking with me. It is a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, um, obviously, you've written a lot of books on the subject of the Crusades and, and uh, war in, in this area during this time. Why did you write a book on Bowmond? Um uh, well, there are two reasons actually. First, because I was asked to. Yeah. <laughs> I had uh, uh, I I had uh, an exchange of emails with the um, one of the chief editors of uh, Pen and Sword, and uh, we were uh, discussing online about the uh, the lack of uh, medieval biographies, and I um, I wrote to him about my PhD. Actually, he knew. Uh, the first book that I um, that I have written um, for Boydell and Brewer uh, about the raids of the Norman dukes uh, in uh, of the Norman dukes of southern Italy in Sicily to Byzantium, so the career, the, the military career of Robert Guiscard and um, his invasion of Byzantine Illyria when he faced uh, the Byzantine emperor Alexis Comnenus, and then he came up with the um, proposal of writing a book. Uh, about the biography of uh, writing about the biography of Bohemond, the son, the famous son of uh, Robert Giscard. And uh, in our brief exchange of emails, I I pointed out to him that there was uh, there was no recent biography of Bohemond in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he wrote back saying, "Well, why don't you write one?" Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and that's and that's the very brief story behind the writing of. Uh, Boyman's biography. <laughs> okay. And before I continue, I'll remind listeners that we've done a previous interview a couple of years ago, and people can go back and listen to that to get more of an idea of how you got into the subject. Um, we won't cover it again here. But um, as far as Bowman, you know, I haven't read uh, a lot about him for years. Sort of the enduring image I have of him is the sort of a kind of crude, sort of a meathead kind of guy who just went and, and won a bunch of battles and then did just very crazy stuff as he took his, his kingdom out there. So just just educate me about him, his importance. Exactly. Well, I, I mean, this is the stereotypical image that, you know, you you would have to read if you read the Byzantine sources, of course, and the Byzantines are very good at creating... At, um, uh, writing propaganda against their enemies. Um, and uh, as I write in the introduction of my book, the uh, Bohemond was the nemesis of uh, the Byzantine emperor Alexis Comnenus. And since the main uh, Byzantine source that we have for this period is, of course, Anna Comnena, the firstborn child and the lovely daughter of the emperor Alexis Comnenus, uh, as I've been uh, telling to my students every year on the introduction to Byzantine history, my Byzantine histories course, is that yeah, you need to be very much aware of the background of the primary, of the medieval primary sources that you're studying. So, although Anna Comnena is stating clearly in her introduction that he will, she will try to be objective, uh, I ask my students, do you really think that she would write anything against her father? The answer is no. So since we understand that Boimon was the 
greatest enemy of her father, her lovely father, the father that she loved, and we can certainly believe that she loved him. Um, uh, she's uh, she's she's portraying both Boimon's father, Robert Giscard, and Boimon himself as a kind of a great warriors because they are. I mean, when we read their portrait, especially at the beginning of her Alexia, you know, they are portrayed as very brave warriors. There's no doubt about that, but they are bad. They are crude. They are opportunistic. They are these typical Westerners that the Byzantines like to portray them as, yes, as typically opportunistic. So, um, uh, Bohemond is a typical example. So, and he's not only a, an evil character, but he represents in the eyes of the Byzantines and in the eyes of Anna Komina, the evil Westerners. And let's remember as well that we're in the time of the, of the Crusades. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it's, it's, I don't think that it's a generalization to say that the Byzantines didn't really like the, <laughs> like the Crusaders. So, yeah. Um, and how we can see that, you know, Boemond a little bit changes um, how his, um, his description changes is that, you know, at the beginning of the book, on book one of Anna Comina, uh, we have a portrayal of, um, well, actually the best physical description of Boimon that we have. And this is what I put in the introduction of my, uh, my first chapter of the, of Boimon's, um, biography. And he, he's portrayed in a very nice manner. And you can tell that he's quite a handsome man. He must have been quite a handsome man, uh, very tall, very, a very typical Westerner with, you know, ginger hair, et cetera, et cetera, very broad shoulders. But his, this, the description of his character abruptly changes yeah. when he invades the empire. <laughs> then he becomes this villain, this evil, uh, this evil Westerner. And, uh, you can see that, you know, uh, Anna Komina holds great grudges, you know, against him. So, uh, yeah. That's his description, and that's of course what has survived. Mm -hmm. That's the that's that's the image of uh, Bohemond that has survived through the centuries. What years are we talking about, and where was Bohemond from, and where did he travel to and, and um, campaign? So, uh, I mean, the, the the background of Bohemond is that he was born in um, uh, San, uh, probably in San Marco Argentano in Calabria in southern Italy. Uh, we don't know exactly when, sadly, but probably between the, the two time, uh, extremes that we have is either in be, between 1050 and 1058, uh, somewhere between these two, uh, years. Um, and, uh, he's the, um, he was the firstborn son of, uh, the great Norman Duke, uh, Robert Giska. And, uh, the, great stages of his career was his first invasion of uh, the, the Byzantine Empire, uh, the Byzantine province of Illyria, which is modern Albania, and his uh, besiege of the um, great port of uh, Dirachium, which is modern Jures in, um, in the Albanian coast, uh, the defeat of uh, the Byzantine Emperor Alexis Komnenos uh, in October 1081, uh, then we have a few years where he's roaming around Greece with his army, uh, uh, central and southern Greece, mm -hmm. and he even reaches the outskirts of uh, the second uh, largest city of the empire, Thessalonica. And then the, of course, he's defeated, mm -hmm. as every villain in history. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and then 
Uh, he goes back to Italy to look his wounds, and he sees uh, an opportunity, hence uh, the title, whether he was an opportunistic crusader. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another question that I answer in, uh, in my book. When, he, when the first crusades launched, and of course he's very happy to um, answer the call of, um, of, of Urban, of Pope Urban, to travel to the east and liberate the holy places. And there, uh, this is the, perhaps the glorious page of his, uh, of his career, mm-hmm. um, when he, he meets again, he, well, he meets, not again, face to face with Alexis Comnenus in the Imperial Palace uh, in, 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 in Constantinople. And then we have the crossing of the First Crusade through Anatolia uh, and then um, through Central Anatolia down to uh, to Syria, and the um, the siege of the city of Antioch, and uh, the victory, the famous victory over the uh, over the Turks uh, that brought the conquest of the city of Antioch mm. in 1098, and then again, you we see how. He again becomes opportunistic when he chooses to stay in Antioch instead of fulfilling the Crusaders' vows and move down, move south to Jerusalem to liberate the Holy City because that was the whole point of actually uh, marching there with an army. He decided to stay there, and of course, this is uh, this is portrayed again by the sources in a uh, in an understandably you know opportunistic manner. So then. Uh, the final stage of his uh, military of his military career was his going back to Europe uh, between 1105-1106, and then choosing to um, assault, invade the empire again for the second time. That was his second mistake, according to Ancomnino, of course. Mm. Um, and uh, in 1108, 1107-1108, he again. Uh, besieges uh, the city of uh, of Dyrrachium in um, in the Adriatic coast in modern Albania, and uh, he is defeated uh, for the second time uh, in 1108. And then he dies in the middle, I think March, if I remember correctly, of uh, 1111 mm-hmm. uh, in southern Italy. So this is uh, this is the his uh, his CV. Uh, as as an evil, uh, as an evil Norman. (laughs) (laughs) I'm speaking with Georgios Theotokis, author of Bowman of Toronto. You can find more information about his work at his academia.edu page and on the pen and sword military website. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So, yeah, so let's, um, before I go into details about what he did and why, um, can you talk about sort of his part in the Norman tradition? Because I think most people, most English speakers think the Normans, they think the, you know, invasion of England and, and pretty much that's their big thing. But they had an extensive, um, they did a lot, um, more than I think most people realize. So can you talk about his part in sort of the Norman tradition of conquest? Um, yeah, the the Normans in the south are very very much misrepresented because again the uh, the, uh, the the glory of, um, uh, of Hastings in 1066 you know overshadows the the achievements of the Normans in the south, and uh, you know sadly even in 
contemporary bibliography, let alone you know medieval bibliography. In contemporary bibliography, every 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 modern author that writes a book, myself included, that uh, has to write that wants to write about the Normans in in the Mediterranean, they have to in the in the title of the book, they have to specify that they will not that they are not going to be talking about the Normans because uh, when you when you write that you will be talking about the Normans, immediately the reader's mind goes to the Normans in the north. But the, we have to, and in another collective volume that I have edited recently, uh, I have to specifically say that I'm writing about the Normans in the south, so that you know there is no uh, misunderstanding. But yes, uh, the the Normans that travel south, uh, uh, first as pilgrims and then as soldiers of fortune in, of course, in inverted commas. I borrowed this from Robert Bar Bartlett, but this is how he calls them. Um, but they are because they, they form an episode of this uh, great Western European uh, expansion of the aristocracy. Uh, that we see again of, of the of the European uh, aristocracy of the uh, of the 10th and the early 11th century that also saw expansion in the east with the Baltic Crusades a little bit later that we saw the, the Norman expansion in the um, in in England and in the south we see a few hundreds uh, at the beginning of the 11th century a few hundred Normans which incidentally. It is a mistake to talk about the Norman expansion. It's a great mistake because for the last 25, 30 years, through analysis of the charters, now we have come to understand that less than half and probably only a third were actually from Normandy. Um, the rest were from um, counties neighboring Normandy, so from Anjou, Maine, etc., etc. But uh, they were grouped together as northerners uh, in the sources but they were not all normans mm. um, but still they belong to this uh, western european miracle the norman miracle the western european miracle uh, that brought hundreds and then there was a steady flood of uh, thousands in the um, by the end of the 11th century and the the normans were at least in the south uh, they were very good at spotting political opportunities for expansion. Um, we're very good at uh, choosing a, an employer. Um, they were very good at negotiating <laughs> contra military contracts, let's say, mm. because uh, their fame preceded them. Their fame as warriors preceded them. And they were very good at creating this image of a great warrior. We're very good at that. Um, whatever uh, Mediterranean source you study, you see that um, they're portrayed as the ideal warriors. Whether this is true or not, that's a different um, that's a different story altogether. But they were very good at their own propaganda, extremely good. And um, the point is, is that um, many employers in the south believed them, including the Byzantine uh, emperors. So, because they employed many of the Franks, again, it's a generic term to describe the Westerners, they employed many of them in Anatolia, where they needed them, they needed heavy cavalry. Um, uh, but they were also very good at, I guess, spotting opportunities to create their own uh, little states mm -hmm. that later grew into bigger states. And uh, again, they, as I said, they were very good at uh, 
seeing opportunities to expand. So um, they they have been misrepresented. They have they they deserve a for greater light to be shown on their achievements. But I think um, we will get there eventually. So how much um, were they and Bowman in particular motivated by religion versus motivated by money and opportunity and power? Um, in my view, I don't think that uh, religion has not much to say. Um, I think that he, he, in these critical stages of his, of his career, um, as a... Uh, as a as, as a firstborn son of of of, of Robert G. Scott and uh, as a bastard, because let's let's not forget that he was pronounced a bastard uh, when Robert G. Scott divorced um, his uh, his mother, and then he had to claim uh, he lost his claims to the um, to the Norman Principality of the South to Robert Borsa, Roger Borsa. Mm. Um, he. In these in these cases um, before the first crusade, and also before his second invasion of Byzantine Illyria, so in 10, 1095-96-97, and also in eleven o four, eleven o five, eleven o six, he was very good at spotting uh, a political deadlock, and. He was very good at seeing that there is no way out for him to improve his situation, his political and military situation, first in Italy and then in the um, in his principality in Antioch. And he made, in both these cases, he made radical decisions, strategic, political and strategic decisions that changed a lot. So... Uh, in the first case, he saw that he couldn't grow his um, uh, his ambition. I mean, he couldn't grow his uh, principality in the south of Italy. So uh, again, he decided to uh, join the First Crusade. <laughs> and while he was in Antioch as the lord of his principality in Antioch, he saw that he was uh, in, under pressure by the other Westerners and by the Turks and Byzantium as well. So he decided to go back to Italy, go on a tour, the political and diplomatic charming offensive in Western mm. Europe before coming back and deciding to invade. That was a plan that he had in his mind all along, but then he decided to invade the Byzantine Empire for the second time in 1107. Mm. He was a master strategist. And he knew about diplomacy. I think he was really good. So um, I don't, again, I don't, in my view, I don't think that religion was so important. He was much more of a realist. How did he, uh, what were his uh, forces composed of? Was it men who stayed with him throughout or how would he keep people by his side? Yeah, that's that's a, that's a difficult question because, um, as for every medieval army, it's very difficult to know exactly the composition of troops. Um, uh, uh, the thing that we know um, for his um, for his army that joined the uh, that joined him for the first crusade is that it was relatively small and probably one of the smallest contingents. Mm-hmm. 
of local lords from southern Italy. In, um, in both of his invasions of the Byzantine Empire in 1081 and then again at 1107, again, we know names of counts from southern Italy that joined him. We, it's very difficult to have specific numbers and almost impossible to know with certainty the exact numbers uh, of the, of the troops that joined him. Mm-hmm. He, it was a rela- his armies were rel- re- relatively homogenous. They were not multi-ethnic, as you can, um, as we can imagine, as the, for example, the Byzantine armies, uh, troops were. Mm-hmm. But to give more details would be very risky, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the, the sources cannot support more information. They do not give us more information about that. And um, you mentioned before, so they were uh, just heavy cavalry, just knights on horseback, armored knights on horseback? Uh, uh, they were famous about their heavy cavalry, but they were not only uh, heavy cavalry, of course. Uh, uh, roughly less than half, of course. Uh, again, I'm generalizing here, but uh, usually about a quarter of them were heavy cavalry, but that's what they were famous for. Not in all cases. For example, um, when the the Normans in the south crossed into Sicily uh, in 1061, and then it took them about 30 years to uh, conquer the entire island. But in the initial stages of their expansion, there were very few. Uh, we're talking about a few hundreds. And in the three major battles against the Arabs of the island, 1061, 1063, 1068, <laughs> I think, um, they, uh, they were facing uh, enemy armies that were sometimes even 10 times uh, stronger in terms of numbers. And we know that the, their, uh, the Norman armies were uh, composed exclusively of Norman cavalry. But that's not the rule. Uh, in their invasions of, um, of Byzantine Miria, we know that roughly a quarter would have been heavy cavalry. Mm-hmm. The rest would have been levies from again from the south uh, lightly armed infantry mm-hmm. not not very disciplined uh not very not, not really good but the their uh, main weapon and the weapon that they were famous for all over the mediterranean was of course their heavy cavalry and of course that made the their heavy cavalry charge famous infamous notorious whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. What, uh, how did, I've never actually considered this question before, and maybe there's not much information, with the the levies, were the knights themselves, would they command the levies what to do, or did they use sort of, you know, like sergeants, or, you know, to use a modern term? <laughs> um, no, uh, yeah, uh, they would use, of course, they would, um, they would, they would be under the command of um, one of their own. First of all, and uh, they would again. It's difficult to know for any period before the late medieval period. Um, so, uh, just to risk giving an answer here, yes, there would have been probably um, some sergeants and some uh, lesser aristocrats that would probably have commanded units of fifty, a couple of hundred. Not that the sources give any detail about it, but this is just a guess. And again, just 
going backwards from some more information that we have about the late medieval period. Mm-hmm. But how practically how the system works, again, we cannot know for sure, mm-hmm. uh, sadly. So what you've described so far, it sounds like the Byzantium sort of had a, a conflicted relationship with Bowman and these Normans. On one hand, they wanted to hire them to fight some battles for them, and then when they showed up, they would t- turn on them sort of in a way at times? Um, not uh, uh, um, uh, the Byzantines were interested in um, hiring mercenaries and hiring uh, high-quality troops. Mm-hmm. Um, no, they didn't have any relationship with Bohemon, but we know that there were many um, Frankish, again, by this term, we identify the Westerners, many, oh, they were also identified as Celts as well, uh, depending on the source, but many Westerners um, in their armies already since the 1040s. And there were many bands of um, Western European mercenaries in uh, the Byzantine army, uh, that they were active in uh, in uh, Asia Minor, in Eastern Asia Minor, or in the um, in the Balkans, in uh, just south of the Danube. Again, depending on the geopolitical situation, the geopolitical emergency, whether they were fighting the Turks in Eastern Anatolia, or whether they were fighting uh, other uh, enemy nomads in in the Balkans. Mm-hmm. So they and and also um, they were in bad terms, later in good terms, with many political factions in southern Italy as well. Before they became established in southern Italy, they were employed by the Pope, by Lombard princes, they were in communication with with the Byzantine generals there. So I have to say that before 1059, so before their um, 1053, I'm sorry, uh, before 1053 and the famous Battle of Kivitate, the Byzantines and the Pope and the Lombards massively underestimated the danger of these newcomers in the South. Um, they massively underestimated um, the threat that they posed. Uh, and they discovered to their horror that, uh, yes, the first of all, they're very smart, second of all, they're very strong, and third of all, they're ruthless. Hmm. This is how they uh, expanded themselves in Italy, later in Sicily, and they threatened the most glorious empire in the world, hmm. which is, if, if you read the Byzantine sources, that goes to Hebris, Hubris. So hmm. it's like, you know, you cannot do that. You're becoming so strong that you're challenging the Eastern Roman Empire. It hmm. is it's it's almost a sin. Yeah. It's like you're challenging the will of God who created the empire. Exactly. And who are you to do that? <laughs> yeah. So when you mentioned Bowman going around Greece um, and sort of the other stuff he did, it makes me – was was he looking for a seat of power? Or was he, It sounds like he almost just liked to fight. <laughs> um, that's a really good question. And again, it, it depends on um, how you examine his strategy. And this is, again, one of the answers that I give in my book that's not examining any other of his biographies, because uh, Ralph Yodel's book that was um, published in 1917 is the best that we could have. And it's a really good biography still. And um, um, Jean Flores and Luigi Russo's relatively recent um, biographies are, again, extremely good. 
but they do not examine uh, Boimond as a strategist and as a tactician. And this is what I do. So what we see, in, again, in, in these different stages of his military career is that I, what I do is that I try to examine, examine him as a strategist and try to see how his strategy changes. For example, I, I use the term Vegetian strategy from the, um, from the famous, you know, fifth century, uh, author of the uh, Epitomare Militaris. So Vegetian strategy is, has been coined by modern historians as a strategy of battle avoidance to avoid, um, uh, to avoid a pitch battle and, well, defeat your enemy by other means, good or bad, to trick him, diplomacy, money, um, lies, uh, besiege of castles, etc., but do not give battle. Mm. If you, and again, if we see uh, in this, in this period of 1081, 1082, 1083, when he besieges the city of Dirachium, and then he goes, um, uh, he roams around Greece with his army, uh, we see that he is actually he defeated the Byzantine army at Tirachium in 1081, and he goes around Greece with his army, besieging city after city, conquering city after city, hoping that the imperial forces and Alexis Comnenus will come and face him again. So he's provoking another confrontation. So he's actively looking for another battle. So this is, his strategy is non-vegetal. Why is he doing that? Well, simply because he doesn't have any money to go and stay there and establish himself there. He needs a decisive battle. He needs a decisive battle to do what? To, well, if you are facing the Byzantine Emperor, what can be more decisive than to defeat him and hopefully like it happened at Hastings, to kill him and end. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this didn't happen in Dirachium. So he missed his chance. Mm. And Alexis Cominus was very lucky because he was almost killed. He was chased after by Norman knights. And there were some of his troops that actually saved his life. And he went back to uh, Thessalonica, the second largest city of the empire. Mm. And he rallied his troops to defend the Balkan territories of the empire. And you see that uh, Bohemond is uh, looting and going around and challenging, challenging the emperor to come and face him. But he's not doing that. Eventually he does after two years, but he doesn't, he doesn't accept battle. Alexis Comnenus doesn't accept battle. And surprisingly, well, I don't know if we can say that, but in 1107, 1108, when we have the Norman forces under Bohemond besieging Dirachium for the second time, and we have Alexis Comnenus defending his province for the second time, uh, we see that the person who actually learned his lesson was not Bohemond. It was Alexis Comnenus. Hmm. Because Alexis Comnenus for the second time, he doesn't give battle but he imposes a blockade mm. and he starves Boimon's troops to surrender because there is a massive plague in his camp and Boimon sees that he doesn't have any other option but to surrender. Mm. 
And this is again what I see because I com- what I do in my book is I compare military cultures. I'm speaking with Georgios Theotokis, author of Bowman of Toronto. You can find more information about his work at his academia.edu page and on the Pen and Sword Military website. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. This question we might have no information on, and maybe it's a little too in the weeds, but recently I I just came across conversations about the type of horses they used, and just considering the um, the terrain that all this is happening on, the difficult terrain, I'm just curious if we have any information on sort of the type of horses they would both sides would use and, and how they would get their war machines around and travel around there. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I'm, I'm afraid, you know, I don't have any definitive answer because, you know, I don't, um, I'm not, I'm not an expert on, well, I'm not an expert on horsemanship in general, but, uh, you know, I haven't studied the horses of the, of the Byzantines, actually. There's a very good, there's a very good book, The War Horses in the South, or something like that. Um, but, um, I'm, <laughs> I don't think that there is any description of the horses, I mean, for this period, mm-hmm. in the sources to be able to have a definitive idea, to have a good idea about how uh, the, the size, first of all, uh, and um, with regards to the to logistics and the siege, the siege train, the Normans practically, um, I mean, for both of their sieges of uh, the city of Tirakim, the port of Tirakim, practically they didn't have uh, a large siege uh, train because they mm-hmm. uh, they had a very small fleet, and from the sources we understand that they barely had space to bring in the first time, so in 1081, a little bit more than I think a thousand horses, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. So they barely, I don't think that we have any space practically for any. Siege uh, machines. Mm-hmm. Um, they would have constructed siege towers on the spot, and this is what they did, rudimentary. But the description of these is not very good in the sources. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, it is very difficult to give more uh, information. Again, because of the information that we get from the sources, sadly. What was the importance of this port that he um, that he sieged twice? Extremely important because it's at the beginning of the Via Ignatia that took, uh, the Via Ignatia that uh, began, of course, in Constantinople and went to Thessalonica in Macedonia and then to the port city, the Adriatic port city of Tirakim. So it connected, uh, the two sides of the body, two edges of the Balkans, uh, uh, in modern day Albania and, uh, Constantinople. So it was the, the two ends of the Vietnadia, the famous Vietnadia. And of course, after Thessalonica, which is more or less, you know, midway, uh, from, um, from Constantinople, there are the, um, different vias, uh, military routes that went north to, to northern Balkans and of course to, uh, to the Danube. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that river, is it pretty geographically speaking? Is it pretty navigable the whole way through or do you have? The Danube, yeah, it, it it can be, of course, in the in the summer. Yes, it can be. 
Mm-hmm. And so whenever it's um, whenever the river would freeze in the in the winter, there would be trouble. Uh, there would be trouble, of course, for the south for the for the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever they, um, they and there are winters that uh, whenever it froze, we have major invasions mm-hmm. um, for the Roman Empire and major trouble. Yeah. Um, so let's turn to uh, the resources you used. You, you've mentioned the sources quite a bit, um, or mentioned that you know uh can you go into more detail about what you used for for this book uh the sources Mm -hmm. um for the um for the first uh for the first period of his uh, of boyman's life uh of course the main we have three main sources but we can call them the norman uh the norman sources in the south um we have a match monica zeno we have joffrey malatera and we have william Apulia. Uh, they are writing in Latin, and they deal with a period of the expansion of the Normans in the south uh, from the beginning of the 10th century until more or less the final quarter of the uh, 11th century. Mm-hmm. On the uh, f- from we also have a Byzantine source, a Byzantine source, of course, this source is Anacomina, and uh, our sources become, um, well, a little bit more um, when we deal with the uh, Crusades, of course, with the First Crusades, when we bring Western European sources into the um, into our perspective. And it's, so the period between 10, the launching of the First Crusade, so 1098, 1097, 1098, and then the first, the first uh, the first few years of the 12th century. This this is uh, this is a period when we have Arabic sources, of course, and we have Western European sources again. Uh, these ones writing in Latin, who are who give us more information again to compare what is happening, especially in terms of politics in the in the Levant mm-hmm. uh, for this period. How about archaeological uh, information? Anything new or recent? Uh, not, uh, not to my knowledge, not to my knowledge. Um, I mean, archaeology can be very, uh, very useful in terms of excavating castles, excavating fortifications, excavating battlefields, and this is crucial. I'm not aware of any recent excavation, uh, although I've learned recently about the Battle of Manziket, which is <laughs> not, it's not related to Bohemond, but it's a major geopolitical development. Uh, in the region and for this period again, uh, 1071. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not aware of any archaeological discoveries that would uh, reshape or add anything to our knowledge uh, for this period. But again, it is crucial because, especially when it comes to excavating uh, fortifications, that's that's re- that's really good, or uh, sites or potential sites of battlefields. Mm-hmm. Are there any um, sites or forts um, associated with Bowman that that are still standing, or, or areas that people can visit? Or, uh, well, I mean, apparently you have until, but again, it's not it's not uh, associated with Bowman per se. Um, the the one that I, I've actually never I've never visited, and I'm a little bit ashamed about that. It's because it's in my country, it's in Greece. Um, there is the Tower of Bowman. Mm-hmm. Um, in Ioannina, 
Uh, Ioannina is the modern capital of uh, northwestern Greece, and it was also a major, major city, hence very well fortified um, also in, uh, in the Middle Ages. And uh, when, uh, in 1082, when Bohemond took the city, uh, he refortified uh, the citadel and he added an extra tower which is which survives and i also have a picture of it in my in my book and it even now it's, it is called the tower of Bohemond. Hmm. Okay. Uh, i think that's the most famous and of course in italy you have his mausoleum in canossa with yeah uh, of course this is uh, this is this is another side that you have to and i also haven't but this is another side that someone should visit hmm. if uh, interested about um Bohemond and his career. What what language did he speak? Do we know? Um, he was uh, he was uh, multilingual, of course, as as um, most of the people in the Mediterranean were and still are. Um, uh, he, he definitely could um, understand and speak Greek, of course, with a barbarian accent, hmm. but still. Um, and, uh, we are pretty sure that he could also understand Arabic, uh, again, because he, he grew up and he, um, and the initial stages of his career took place in the South, where the, especially in Sicily, where he, the, the Arab element was, I don't want to say dominant, but it was there for many centuries, especially in Sicily. So, yeah. I will, we believe that he also could speak Arabic. And also that's one of the reasons why he was one of the leaders and the unofficial leader of the First Crusade. Hmm. Uh, and his contingent was very useful, not only in terms of uh, military strength and power, but also because they, they knew the enemy and they could talk to the enemy as well. Oh. Were the Normans, and again, knowing that the term should be qualified, were, they were operating in Spain as well, weren't they? Weren't there some... uh, they, they were, yes, uh, they were. And there were mercenaries, for example, that they would again um, uh, uh, go back to Italy and they would, and some of them would also find their way to Byzantium. Uh, theirs is also a fascinating story, again, because they, you see that they, um, they take advantage of the Reconquista period. Uh, in Spain, and they they see it as a an opportunity to <laughs> to do it for the glory of God, mm -hmm. for money, and for their own personal fame. Mm -hmm. I don't want to put it in any specific order, mm -hmm. but all of them were important for a medieval warrior. Right. What for this particular book? And I know you've been studying this subject for a long time and written quite a bit. But was there anything? with Bowman that surprised you that you came across? Uh, <laughs> his, his resilience, because I haven't studied all of his, I haven't studied all of the, his entire career, because for my, for my PhD, I studied just the initial phases of his career. And um, there was not any specific incident that would make me feel sorry for him or uh, excite me or surprise me or whatever. But, you know, but, um, in general, now that I've, you know, come to write a book about his um, his life and his career, you know, I've I've, I've come to admire his um, his resilience because I know that he, it takes lots of uh, lots of courage and lots of energy and lots of determination to do 
he did. I mean, I know that I won't have had the energy to do that. I know that I won't have had the resilience to do that. But, you know, to, to come as the underdog and try to, again, challenge the, the glorious empire of Byzantium twice and follow this great expedition. And we're talking about the first crusade that was an, an, an expedition to the unknown that was, that was unheard of to answer the call of God and to go to the East and then establish your own principality and then go back and challenge the empire for the second time. That's, that's huge. That takes, that's, that's, that, that talks, that speaks volumes about his resilience. And this is what actually I admire. And this is what I, uh, when I was writing the, the epilogue, the, uh, my conclusions for the book, I said that, yeah, he's, uh, what I was thinking is that this is what I admire. What, um, obviously, as we've talked throughout, there are a lot of gaps in information, but is there a particular question about him that perhaps could be answered in the future with some discovery that you'd really like to get an answer for? There is, there is nothing that archaeology could tell us, sadly. Um, uh, the question that perhaps, you know, archaeology, uh, that historians would like to reshape our view uh, it has to do with his motives, and this is what you know. I can, um, in different parts of my book, I try to interpret what the sources are telling us uh, to try and get an idea about his motives. So, if you ask me, for example, why did he choose to follow the First Crusade? You asked me that, and I said that I believe because of the X, Y, and Z. Um, why did he choose to invade the Byzantine Empire in 1081? Why did he choose to do it for the second time? Although he saw how he, how the, he was cornered after two years in, uh, in Greece and he had to retreat back to, to Italy. Uh, in a sense, you know, this is what, uh, this is what historians always want to do, you know, to get into the minds of their heroes and, you know, to try to ask them, you know, why did you do it? Uh, but, you know, again, the sad part is that I don't think that we will ever get answers unless there is a, there is a, there is a huge discovery of a manuscript that we didn't know. Uh, the only thing that we can do is that we can, uh, talk about mot motivation every 10, 20, 30 years and try to reinterpret the evidence. But, uh, yeah, historians have plenty of time to do that. <laughs> what, uh, for this book, what, what part of the research was most enjoyable for you? Not not any specific part of the research, but I like to travel. What what I, what I like to do is that I I gave particular uh, importance on the battlefields and the topography of the battlefields, and it felt like you know I was actually following him uh, because Anna Comnena's description of especially the the geography and the topography of the Balkans is very good, surprisingly good for a historian that hasn't even traveled there. But that shows that she was very well educated and that her sources were very well informed. And what I really like is actually mapping and following um, Bohemond's invasion, uh, different invasions, uh, his invasion of the Balkans and then his invasion of Anatolia. And uh, this is, it, it felt like I'm, I'm, I have a, uh, I'm in a helicopter over the army and just, you know, following him around. And this is what I enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Was there, um, and I know looking at old history like this, it's, you're not maybe going to feel this, but did you have 
any emotional impacts by anything you came across or putting this book together, positive or negative? Uh, uh, referring to me, if I, yes. if I, if I had. Yes. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm, tr I'm trying to be as much as, as, as objective as I can. And, um, I, to, 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 to look at the, uh, to look at the events, you know, from a very distant perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I, I cannot, um, you know, I, I was emotional when I was reading, you know, uh, Anna Comino's description of, of, of her. And, you know, I could, I, I could understand, you know, how she despised him, hated him, um, because, you know, as, as I said, again, she, he was challenging something sacred. For Anna Comino, that sacred thing was the empire that was led by father and uh, for myself as a as a greek yes it was um i could understand the hubris as i said mm -hmm. <laughs> uh but that's it i'm not uh, i i try to i try to be as objective as i could mm -hmm. what what else has she written any are there any other histories that she's produced or is it the one work uh just the one work, which is it. Of course, it's it's voluminous. It's uh, it's huge, but um, uh, just the one work. Uh, that's why I'm saying that I wish you know someone discover would discover in Mount Athos in um, in Greece, you know, some other manuscript or whatever. But uh, sadly, that hasn't happened. But uh, yeah, that's 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 her masterpiece. Mm -hmm. So obviously, I'm sure there are um, reproductions of it. But what is there an original, or what's the oldest version of this? Where is it kept? Uh, I'm ashamed to say that I don't know. I don't know. I haven't looked at the history of um, of the the, the, the history of uh, of Anna Comnenus, uh, Alexia. I'm, I'm ashamed to say. Yeah. Uh, so ultimately, what do you hope the book will do for readers? It will uh, give them an exciting story to read of a uh, a soldier of fortune. And um, it will also open a new window into the interpretation of a very ambiguous character, because as I'm saying, he was um, he was very ambiguous. He was um, he was loved and hated at the same time. So many people could identify with him. Many people who are trying to put down roots, they are very ambitious and they are trying to achieve their goals. And you know, they might. Uh, I'm hoping that they will identify with him because, as I said, you know, he was a very resilient man. He was a very ambitious man. He set, uh, he set very high goals for himself. Mm -hmm. uh, he set the bar very high. Uh, and he almost jumped over the, <laughs> yeah. the bar. He achieved, he almost achieved what he wanted, but um, he had, he found against him uh, another resilient ambitious and very capable general, politician, diplomat, and emperor. And that was Alexis Comnenus. Mm -hmm. What about, do you, um, in the book, didn't he have an, un didn't Bowman have an unusual marriage or noteworthy sort of marriage ceremony? Do you go into that? Am I thinking? Uh, not, uh, not very much. I'm just, I'm just analyzing the significance of the marriage with Constance. So it's, um, it, 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 it was diplomacy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but it was a very critical part of his um, uh, of his diplomacy, and uh, that's why he just on the two years before his second invasion. That's why he he went west 
Uh, he went on, on, a, on a charming offensive, uh, in, uh, especially in France and in northern Italy, but uh, again, especially in France, mm-hmm. because he was um, preparing for his for his 1107, 1108 um, invasion. So his marriage was a critical part of his whole of his whole plan. Mm-hmm. So I think you mentioned already that uh, you were asked to write this book. Were there any difficulties in getting it finished or finally published? Uh, not at all. Not at all. It was um, it was in a, in, a, in a period of my of my career that I had plenty of time to to write this book. So it was uh, it was a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Not that writing a book is not a pleasure. Of course it is. Uh, otherwise, if it's not a pleasure, then you shouldn't write a book. <laughs> um, but um, when you know on the uh, when you have to write a book and you have to answer emails about deadlines and about footnotes to students, um, that it kind of distracts. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit distracting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I enjoyed it very much and I had a very good, um, working relationship with the editors of, uh, of Pen and Sword. And, um, I'm looking forward to doing it again. It was, uh, it was really, it was really good. What, uh, what current writing projects do you have going on? Um, now, I'm, um, I'm writing, uh, I'm writing an article. I just, first of all, I just finished the first translation into English of a ninth century treatise, military treatise, about 35, uh, 38 pages long about battle exhortation. So how to inspire your troops before and during battle, uh, written probably as part of a compendium, a collection. But also included a treatise on land warfare and, and naval treaties. So that, that was a third part that dealt with how to exhort the troops, to encourage the troops before and during battle. Uh, but that part was not, uh, it hadn't been translated in, in English. And the only translation into any modern language was in Italian. So it was published, uh, it will come out in, um, in April with, uh, Rutledge. And I'm, I have been commissioned and I will start probably in late spring, uh, writing a new monograph on the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. So I'm, again, I'm looking forward to, um, uh, to deal with, uh, probably the most significant land battle, uh, for the geopolitical history of Byzantium in the middle period. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the battle that opened uh, Anatolia mm-hmm. the Seljuk Turks. That was critical. So I'm just curious. You do a lot of writing, and you also teach. How do you um? Do you have any sort of uh, methods that that you use to just keep keep producing and keep writing? L- lots l- lots of coffee. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I yeah. I have a very strict routine. <laughs> That's what I have to say. I have a very strict routine and I have a very strict schedule and I'm, uh, yeah, I enjoy what I do. Mm-hmm. I cannot, uh, yeah, I have, I have published, I have published five monographs. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying this as something extraordinary. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not someone who would judge that, who would say that, but, uh, mm-hmm. I do what I do. I have a strict routine. I love what I'm doing and I drink lots of coffee. So that's it. Okay. <laughs> Okay. So where can people people find your work or your thoughts or updates online? Do you have social media or, or website? 
Um, I, uh, I, I have, um, I'm on academia.edu, so mm. this is, this is my official website, and I'm only on Facebook. I don't have any, uh, any, 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 any official page, um, mm. sadly, but people, people can find my, my, my profile, my academic profile on academia, mm-hmm. and my, and my professional contacts, uh, there, and updates on my publications. They can have, uh, they can have access to, uh, many of my articles as mm. well. Uh, and I'm always keen to answer uh, interesting questions. Mm-hmm. And I'll spell. And also, I'll mention obviously your books can be found on Amazon and the publisher websites. And and I'll spell your name for listeners and viewers. So first name is G E O R G I O S, and last name is T H E O T O K I S. Correct. Good. Okay. Good. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words? Um, I hope you enjoyed Boymon's career, and I'm looking forward to uh, talking to you again for uh, my next publications. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. It's it's cool stuff. Um, yeah. So thanks very much for speaking with me. Thank you very much. In the next episode, I speak with Kevin Kiley about artillery of the Napoleonic Wars. Bullseye the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Military History Inside Out. If you want more interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions, including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez, Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.